Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. We are interrupting our normal programming to bring you the breaking news that President Trump and the First Lady have tested positive for the coronavirus. It's astonishing news on top of an already earth-shattering year for this country. President Trump's positive test comes after a very active week on the campaign trail, first at the debate on Tuesday, a rally with thousands of supporters on Wednesday, and a private fundraiser last night. What will this mean for the Trump administration? And with just 32 days left until November 3rd, what does it mean for the election? Let's start this hour with Jill Coven, White House reporter for the Associated Press. Jill, welcome to On Point. Nice to have you today. Thanks for having me. So what is the White House saying about the condition of President Trump? Well, right now, uh, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. But what we know from the White House is that the president is experiencing mild symptoms is the way that they describe it. Uh, The White House right now is still going through the process of trying to track down all of the people, the president and uh, the first lady and Hope Hicks, one of his closest aides, have been in contact with in recent days, making those phone calls, telling those people that they need to be tested, that they need to isolate. And it's a process that's still ongoing. So CBS News reported this morning that Hope Hicks, the president's communication advisor, tested negative for COVID on Wednesday morning. So she boarded Air Force One. She developed symptoms during the day and received a second test, which came back positive. And and the White House knew about this on Wednesday evening. And yet President Trump still held a fundraising event on Thursday. Here he is before his own uh, positive coronavirus test speaking to Fox News, Sean Hannity, last night, that's uh, Thursday night, about his aide Hope Hicks diagnosis. She did test positive. I just heard about this. She tested positive. She's a hard worker, a lot of masks. She wears masks a lot, but she tested positive. And I just went out with a test. I'll see what, you know, because we spent a lot of time and the first lady just went out with a test also. Jill, of course, we don't know how the president was infected, but it reinforces this notion that president has not taken the virus as seriously as some would have liked and certainly is not prioritized wearing a mask. Are we seeing the consequences of that right now? Yeah, I mean, this is extraordinary. You know, Hope, we know, we've reported, um, began feeling ill on Wednesday. The way the White House tests work is they use these Abbott Rapid tests. um, And if somebody does test positive using that sort of, uh, they use it as as a kind of way to to see if somebody is is currently infectious. And if somebody tests positive using that test, then they'll do another subsequent test, um, which is typically seen as a more accurate uh, PCR test to actually confirm that somebody has it. Um, But the fact that the president decided to go to a fundraiser in New Jersey yesterday when the White House knew that Hope was sick, the president then exposing all of those people, the aides who are traveling with him, And we know that the White House knew about it by then because there were several aides who'd been expected to travel on that trip, including Kayleen McEnany, who wound up being pulled at the last minute and replaced by other aides. He also had Kayleen McEnany coming out yesterday, briefing reporters in the briefing room, um, despite the fact that the White House was already aware that this is an issue. We have to see this as part of a pattern. This is a White House that has not taken the virus 
seriously. This is a president who has continued to hold rallies across the country. In fact, he's supposed to be going to a rally tonight that was canceled in Florida. He was supposed to be going this weekend to rallies in hot spots uh, in Wisconsin. Um, and, and they've repeatedly tried to, to act as though this virus is not a threat to them. And finally, now it's caught up to the president himself. So I'm going to go back to your point uh, about few in the president's circle appearing to take precautions, especially over this last these last few days on the Cleveland trip for the debate. The entourage on Air Force One, including the president's national security advisor, his policy advisor, Stephen Miller, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, all were on the plane without masks. And it was also reported today that after Ivanka Trump rode on Air Force One on Tuesday with the president, she traveled to Florida and North Carolina for campaign stops. And at all of those events, she was unmasked and inside. So to your point, there is this incredible potential for exposure here on many levels. Absolutely. And you even saw it was so clear during the debate on Tuesday night. I, I, was, I was in the room. The, the rules that were set by uh, the host organizations were incredibly clear. Masks were required inside. And yet you saw this image of the president's entourage, including his adult children, Ivanka, John Jr., uh, Eric Trump. Uh, you saw them walking into the debate hall. Uh, Ivanka and several others were wearing masks as they walked in, but then taking them off as they sat down. And you saw the difference uh, between the Trump side of the room on the right and the Biden side of the room on the left, with so many not wearing masks on the right and and Biden's side all wearing them. Here's a clip from Tuesday night's debate. Uh, Since you bring it up, Jill, President Trump facing questions about why he often chooses not to wear a mask. Here it is. I think masks are okay. You have to understand, if you look, I mean, I have a mask right here. I put a mask on, you know, when I think I need it. Tonight, as an example, everybody's had a test and you've had social distancing and all of the things that you have to. But I wear masks when needed. When needed, I wear masks. Jill Coven, talk about the national security concerns here, not just about the president, but the scope of a very substantial contact tracing effort now within the federal government. The people who uh, Trump might have been in contact with, specifically the national security team, you know, anybody who was on an airplane with him, but in meetings with him, who he had contact with at the highest levels, who are now out of pocket. I mean, it's not like some of these jobs can be executed from home, Jill. No, I mean, these are people who have security clearances who need to be in person to access classified information. You're talking about, obviously, the national security advisor, the security team that briefs him with his intelligence briefings several times a week. You're talking about the Secret Service agents who accompany him, the detail that is with him at all times and how this impacts that rotation. You have just, I mean, dozens and dozens of senior staffers who would have been exposed to the president over the last week, who would have been exposed to Hope Hicks. And and the attitude at this White House has really been, look, we're tested all the time, and therefore we don't need to take precautions. And, you know, I travel on Air Force One all the time. You see staffers, they are not wearing masks. You see them, you know, in in, in, uh, staff vans, they're packed very closely together. And there is uh, an attitude that comes straight from the top, from the president, who does not like wearing masks. He, of course, you saw him at the debate, you know, pulling it out of his pocket quite theatrically. And we have, to be fair, seen him wear it a number of very limited occasions, including when he uh, went to uh, visit to the hospital. Um, But he has obviously not uh, made an example of himself.
himself wearing it um, and has repeatedly put himself in situations where he is close to people, where he is uh, has encouraged other people to gather uh, again and again and again, putting people mm-hmm. at risk. So it's just crossed that RNC chair Ronna McDaniel has tested yes. positive for coronavirus. Uh, Vice President Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced this morning they have both been tested. They are negative. Um, Talk about Joe Biden, Jill. He was with the president, of course, during the debate. They were socially distanced, but there was a lot of shouting, as we know, and we, we know droplets spread virus through the air. What are you hearing from the Biden campaign today? Yeah, so Biden, um, my understanding is he's been tested and we're awaiting uh, the results now. You know, they they, they uh, purposefully uh, set the two lecterns up um, farther from each other than they would uh, during a debate in another year. And so there was considerable distance between them, but they were certainly fighting with each other. Uh, you know, they, they didn't do the traditional handshake, but the two spent a lot of time with each other. The host, Chris Wallace, tweeted that he too um, is, is awaiting his results. And one question that we don't know the answer to is actually the last time the president was tested. We know he was tested yesterday, that he got his results late last night or early this morning. But we don't know the last time the president was tested. And we know that especially early on, he was quite reluctant to be tested. Um, and so the question remains exactly, uh, you know, whether he was tested before he stood on that stage uh, the debate Tuesday. So Joe Biden was supposed to be in Michigan today. Donald Trump was going to Florida. Um, what's the status of the schedule of these men now and the future really of this campaign? Right now, everything is on hold. Uh, it sounds like Biden um, is is also awaiting his test results, and, and we'll see if he chooses to, to continue. Uh, the way that these things work, as, as we all know by now, you know, you can be exposed, and then it can take a number of days before you actually show up as, as positive on tests. Um, but the president had a very busy upcoming stretch of campaign events. You know, he is somebody who really loves to be uh, on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. and he will not take well to having to be quarantined in the White House. Uh, we will see, uh, depending on how his symptoms progress, uh, if he winds up um, with a mild case. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how long he chooses to actually stay quarantined at the White House and if he follows health recommendations. Mm-hmm. But right now, we are four weeks until Election Day. And this election, this campaign, at least when it comes to in-person events, has effectively been put on hold. Um, I should mention that that the president is right now, the White House is going back and forth about finding a way for him to potentially address the nation today, uh, potentially an event from the White House residence that we still could wind up hearing from him. I've got about a minute left, Jill. Um, We don't know if the president has any symptoms, but there are questions now, of course, that if he gets sicker, What will happen? Um, Talk briefly about continuity of government. We hope the president stays well, but worst case scenario, if he gets sicker, what are the plans? What's what's in the works here? Uh, Well, I mean, this this is really, I mean, stunning territory that that we're talking about this. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, the Constitution's 25th Amendment spells out, you know, the procedures under which the president to declare himself unable to discharge the powers and duties of the presidency. Um, There is, you know, a constitutional process in place. um, But we saw right away the White House came out and said that the vice president, Mike Pence, uh, has tested negative. um, And at this point, there are no indications. You know, we heard from the White House doctor last night who said the president will continue now to do his duties, um, you know, 
until if we, you know, God forbid, reach a point where he can't. Jill Coven, White House reporter for the Associated Press. Jill, thank you for taking the time during a very busy day. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We are talking about President Trump. He has tested positive for the coronavirus. What does it mean for the country? Up next, a roundtable discussion with Nancy Cordes of CBS News, Karen Tumulty of The Washington Post, and On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Much more to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. In a recent episode, series CEO Mindy Luber says sustainability has reached a board level. Look, if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk, you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels, you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're talking about President Trump. He has tested positive for the coronavirus, and we're looking at the ripple effects it could have on our country. I'd like to turn now to our roundtable. Joining me from Washington, Nancy Cordes, Chief Congressional Correspondent for CBS News. Nancy, how nice to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also with us from Washington, Karen Tumulty, political columnist for The Washington Post. Karen, great to have you as well. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Hello, Jack. Hello, Jane, Nancy, and Karen. So after months of playing down the severity of the outbreak uh, that has killed 207,000 people in the United States, President Trump now has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, Just hours, Nancy, after he announced that the end of the pandemic is in sight. Uh, Nancy, what's the latest from your vantage point based on your own reporting today? Well, Jane, there are now a host of lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are getting tested because they came into contact with either the president himself or top White House officials over the course of the week. This was actually a very busy week on Capitol Hill when it came to interacting with White House officials. Amy Coney Barrett, the president's nominee for the Supreme Court, who has been working out of the White House as she prepares for her confirmation hearings, she sat down with about a third of the Senate this week in one-on-one meetings and we were in the room at the start of many of those meetings. No one was masked. Mm. Um, she was there. The vice president was there uh, at her first meeting with uh, Senate Repo- uh, Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, Mark Meadows, White House chief of staff, was there. There are Republican lawmakers who went to the debate. Uh, Jim Jordan was with the president earlier this week. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, senator of Tennessee. Uh, so they now say that they are uh, getting tests or have been tested. And, of course, um, 
this raises the question now of what exactly happens going forward with the confirmation hearings that are scheduled for Coney Barrett in uh, less than two weeks now if various senators or Amy Coney Barrett herself end up having to isolate for a period of time. Mm. Um, do they postpone the uh, confirmation hearings? Do they do it remotely? Um, Leader McConnell said just this morning that uh, the biggest threat to her confirmation at this point is coronavirus itself. Mm. So, Karen Tumulty, the president has interacted, as as Nancy says, with scores of people, staff members, donors, supporters. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, of course, was at the White House, as, as Nancy was just describing. What's the impact of all this from your perspective, Karen? Well, I think that um, there's this is a big test of the credibility of this White House. I think it is very important right now that the public get the straight story both on the president's condition and also the, you know, the circumstances that surround it. And this is this is a White House that, especially on health issues, has not really been straight with the public, both on issues involving the president's personal health and also on issues involving the, you know, the situation with this epidemic that has now killed over 200,000 Americans. Jack Beatty, your reaction upon hearing this news? Well, of course, it's very grim for the president, or potentially. Uh, I'm reading that at his age and in his people in his general condition, there's a 20 percent chance of hospitalization and even a 5 percent chance of of, of dying. Uh, but you know, it's 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 isn't it a paradigm of the whole national situation now? I mean, this was preventable, right? That's just no question about it. Uh, everybody, if people had been following the CDC's direction, people in the White House, all around the president for months, it's unlikely this would have happened. And of course, that's true for the country as a whole. If and, and here's the big if the president had been modeling this kind of behavior early on. How many how many uh, cases of disease could have been prevented? How many deaths? It it was it it just seems so careless and so reckless. Karen Tumulty, you wrote today in the Washington Post that this is also now really a matter of national security. Uh, speak to that point as U.S. allies and, and adversaries around the world monitor this situation with President Trump. Well, that that's correct, and we we have seen you know in in past situations where a president has a health crisis, it, it is something that that does in fact affect you know how our allies and how our our adversaries react. And again, all the more of a premium now needs to be placed on on getting getting the straight story here. Do you worry, Nancy Cordes, we may not get the straight story of what's happening in the walls of the White House? Absolutely, because the early reporting was that actually the White House was trying to keep Hope Hicks's positive uh, test right. under wraps until a reporter broke the news of it, and then things just sort of spiraled from there when the president and the first lady had to get tested. So uh, I think based on our, our past experiences and the falsehoods that have been uh, shared even from the, the lectern in the White House briefing room, I do think that there is reason to be skeptical. Uh, I should point out that our 
Your own White House correspondent, Paula Reed, is reporting this morning that, uh, according to at least one White House advisor, the president is exhibiting minor symptoms. And she says that um, CBS News observed from the South Lawn yesterday when he was coming back from his fundraiser in New Jersey that he looked unusually run down um, and uh, that she's trying to get a better sense right now of uh, how exactly he's feeling, what his symptoms are, and whether he has any staffers in close proximity. But there has always been a very uh, lax approach, as Jill Colvin was saying, to, um, to coronavirus mitigation measures at the White House. And Paula points out that just this morning, as she was heading into uh, the White House press area, there were three young staffers working in one tiny office, and only one of them was wearing a mask and it wasn't covering her nose. Let me play this clip. Uh, these are pre-recorded remarks for a Catholic fundraiser just last night where President Trump spoke about the U.S. response to the coronavirus pandemic. Through advances in treatment, we have reduced the fatality rate by 85 percent since just April. We are on track to develop and distribute a vaccine before the end of the year and maybe substantially before. And I just want to say that the end of the pandemic is in sight, and next year will be one of the greatest years in the history of our country. Karen Tumulty, I mean, <laughs> to hear the president say there that the end of the pandemic is in sight, and then to get this news today, clearly we are in a new chapter of this terrible um, crisis in this country, and, and the end is very unclear. Yeah, I think this is also likely to affect, you know, efforts to, to reopen the country. I, I that you know, people will be looking and here is the president of the United States who presumably has a lot more security than than the typical American going about their daily lives. And if if he could get it, I think um, there this is likely to make people leery of efforts to, to push ahead and open up the country again. Mm-hmm. Well, the debate in Cleveland uh, this week takes on new significance uh, with the president's coronavirus diagnosis. He openly mocked Joe Biden for wearing masks. Um, let's talk about the, the chaos in Cleveland. Nancy Cordes, it was quite a spectacle, uh, quite an ugly melee, decorum completely out the window, and, and really a level of contempt unheard of in modern American politics. Um, Right. And it it wasn't just the president. It was also members of his family who entered the the debate auditorium wearing masks, but then took them off in defiance of the rules that had been set by the Cleveland Clinic over the course of the debate. So you saw everyone on the Biden side of the room uh, wearing their masks and many Trump supporters not wearing their masks, sort of openly flaunting the rules for no real end um, uh, because, you know, they were sort of sitting there in the dark anyway. No one could really see them. And I think that that, you know, the, the, the tone is set from the top, and that's something that we've seen on Capitol Hill for months now, which is that a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill have taken their cues from the president. There was a large group of House Republicans who for months refused to wear masks. Uh, now some of them wear those masks grudgingly after many of their colleagues have tested positive uh, over the months for for coronavirus, uh, and even now, even you know, in the, in the past week, I've talked to a number of lawmakers who aren't wearing their masks correctly, uh, or who are only wearing them sporadically. Uh, and I think it's it's partly because of this sort of defiant attitude that they have 
picked up and are, uh, from the White House and, and from the very top, from the president himself. Karen Tumulty, you wrote this week that the debate uh, encapsulated in 98 minutes the entire presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I actually thought it's as, you know, as difficult, I think, as it was for a lot of people to stomach this debate, that it was useful in that sense, because, you know, all of the president's qualities, all of his impulses were just on on full display here. And I think that as people are saying, oh, you know, there have to be adjustments to the format or some new rules, I, I don't think that's practical. Um, and, and again, I, I think in a lot of ways that de- that debate was was quite revealing as a, you know, distillation of Trump's entire governing philosophy. Jack Beatty, your thoughts? It seemed to have that effect on a lot of people. One, notably Mark Raskow, former Republican governor of Montana and former chair of the Republican National Committee. After watching the debate, and especially the president's attack, continuous attack, uh, continuing from really weeks on the on the election, on balloting. Uh, Roscoe said, uh, I've concluded he's dangerous to the existence of the republic as we know it and endorsed Joe Biden, that the qualities, uh, Karen was saying, on display there, along with the um, the attack on the election, effectively, and 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 un, you know uh, unwilling to commit to the election, talking about even urging his supporters to enter uh, polling places, uh, the winks at the Proud Boys mm-hmm. and other groups. Uh, that was enough to make uh, the the former uh, chair of the GOP uh, National Committee conclude that Trump is a threat to the existence of the republic. Here's moderator Chris Wallace asking uh, the candidates if they would pledge to not declare victory until the election is independently certified. Here is how the president responded. I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am 100 percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll tell and what, you what, what from mean, a common sense, does that mean you're going to tell, tell your means. people to take to it the It means screen? you have a fraudulent election. You're and sending you out 80 million ballots. They're not, they're not equipped. To, these people aren't equipped to handle it, number one. Number two, okay. they cheat. Nancy Cordes, the president claimed uh, mail carriers are selling ballots. He said mail ballots are being, quote, dumped in rivers and creeks. Uh, For the record, the FBI says there is no evidence of a coordinated voter fraud campaign. Uh, What did you make of this and, and the president's strategy on this? I think his strategy was to make people as nervous about voting by mail or voting at all as possible. Um, I'm not sure why he thinks that that would uh, help him. I'm sure he's frightening some of his own voters as well. And I think what what stuck out to a lot of us was something that he said at the very end of the debate when he said that he was urging his supporters to go to polling places and watch very carefully what is happening. Uh, That sounded a lot like he was encouraging voter intimidation, which is illegal. Um, Yes, there are official poll watchers who um, are trained and and are deployed to various polling places around the country. They are hired by their various states, but that's not what he was talking about. He was telling his supporters to go there and keep an eye on things. And, you know, that can have a real chilling 
effect on people who are in line. I expect that it will lead to some uh, some skirmishes, uh, perhaps some arrests on on election day. And uh, you know, even if he begs off of that, uh, I think that there are some of his supporters who will go ahead and do it anyway, uh, which is something that you never want to see on election day. And so uh, he definitely left the impression that he was trying to uh, cast a pall over voting in this election in more ways than one. And here is another extraordinary moment uh, when Chris Wallace asked President Trump to condemn right-wing violence and white supremacy. He did not. Here is the president on Tuesday night. I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you, what are you, you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call him? What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right wing. Like white proud supremacists and right proud wing. boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing problem. This is, this is a left-wing problem. This is a left-wing problem. Karen Tumulty, uh, a quick pivot there. Uh, the president obviously not condemning white supremacy uh, the next day. He was asked again at the White House, and he sort of kind of denounced it. Well, whatever it is you're referring to, I don't really know the Proud Boys. But this race-baiting approach... Um, at the debate and certainly, you know, beyond seems to be a feature and not a bug of Trump's message clearly on display this week. Yeah. And stand back and stand by it did did not have the sound of a spontaneous line. It sounded like something that, you know, that this question had been contemplated. And certainly the Proud Boys, even while the debate was still underway, had already come up with a stand back and stand by logo. Jack Beatty, uh, those words stand back and stand by quickly became a new slogan uh, for the extremist group logos, you know, lots posted online. Yes, sir. Proud Boys standing by. I mean, it was extraordinary, Jack. Indeed. And, you know, just looking, reading up about this group, uh, its its leader once said, I cannot recommend violence enough. Another one, another leader said, we will kill you. Quote, that's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. That's one of the leaders saying that. Uh, And, of course, the context is that uh, as uh, a study for the Center for Strategic International Studies pointed out right-wing extremism, uh, terrorists essentially, account for two-thirds of the attacks and plots in the United States. That was in 2019. So, uh, indeed, Antifa is out there, but two-thirds of uh, terrorist attacks uh, domestically are from uh, right-wing extremists. Karen Tumulty, there was some pushback by Republicans who were deeply uncomfortable who are deeply uncomfortable with this rhetoric. But I I think many of them worry about the damage that might ripple from the White House down ballot to other competitive races with just 32 days to go before this election. Yeah, one of the most uh, striking comments was from Tim Scott, the only Republican senator who is African-American, saying that that if the president misspoke, he should say he misspoke. And if he doesn't say that, then we should assume he didn't misspeak. That was that was a pretty, uh, pretty striking comment from one of the president's allies. And of course, Donald Trump never says he misspoke. Well, uh, we have more to discuss, not just from the debate, but uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, on Capitol Hill in the midst of the coronavirus 
now crisis uh, in, in Washington at the White House. We've got House stimulus negotiations to talk to with Karen Tumulty, Nancy Cordes, and Jack Beatty. We are discussing the week's top stories. Much more to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're talking about the week's top news stories with a great panel of guests, Nancy Cordes, Chief Congressional Correspondent for CBS News, Karen Tumulty, Washington Post columnist who covers national politics, and Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Nancy Cordes, you asked a number of Republican senators to share their reactions to Tuesday's debate. I want to play some of that. Here are Republican Senators Susan Collins of Maine, Kevin Craner of North Dakota, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, and John Corn of Texas. Here they are. It was the, the least educational debate of any presidential debate I've ever seen. It, it, was, it wasn't overly interesting. Quite honestly to me, but, I, um, but it was good theater. It was a good start, good kickoff. I don't think there's a clear winner uh, as, and, and I've, I've, I've tried to be unbiased when I say that. Too much of our politics are personality-driven, and I don't think that serves the public interest. Should the president have more forcefully denounced white supremacists? Yes. Nancy Cordes, many Republicans sort of stumbling all over themselves this week after that debate. What did you hear on Capitol Hill? I heard a lot of Republican senators who are normally very careful not to criticize the president. Uh, seemed like they, they were trying to send him a message that he needed to to change his message, if possible, before the next debate. So it wasn't just John Cornyn who said that the president should um, make sure to denounce white supremacy, but it was also Kevin Kramer. It was also Jim Inhofe, uh, a number of Republicans. It was Susan Collins um, and many others. Uh, The fact that Jim Inhofe, who is a huge supporter of the president, to say it's not clear if anyone won that debate, to say that he thinks the president should restrain himself Next time, uh, I think that there were a lot of Republicans who were trying to say to the president, using his favorite medium, the media, uh, to say that he needs to not come not come in so hot this time. And I thought that something that Kramer said was actually the most instructive. Uh, although I'm not sure that the president will take his advice, but he said, "Look, the base is solidified. You don't need to to throw any more red meat to the base. They are behind you. Uh, there is a small pool of persuadable voters, and let's keep our eyes on the." Those are the people you need to convince. Um, so a, a lot of Republican senators understand that, and they're hoping that they'll that they'll follow that advice because, after all, there are a number of Republican 
senators on the Hill who are running for re-election, who are very vulnerable, and they need the president Mm -hmm. to do well in order for them to survive. Jack Beatty, to Nancy's point, it is hard to see how that debate won over any undecided uh, voters, Jack. No, and when you looked at the, I think it's 10% in one poll, when you look at the undecided voters, they aren't uh, to Mr. Trump's right. The pre- There's no one to his right. They're, they're more in the middle. They're soft Biden supporters uh, in the main or or, uh, you, know, in de- you know, pure independents who can't make up their minds. Uh, but if, they're, if, if the idea was to bring over some soft Biden supporters, he solidified them <laughs> with Biden uh, just simply with that, with that performance. It was against uh, his political, what seemed to be his political interest, unless you say his interest is not now and wasn't then in the election, in winning the election, that he's understood that he understands he's not going to win the election. His interest now is provoking a crisis, a constitutional crisis, and making, uh, uh, you know, as the other panelists have said, Election Day a hazardous uh, venture for Americans. And in the aftermath of it, uh, creating uh, all kinds of trouble, either in the streets or in the courts or with in cahoots with Republican state legislators, creating trouble to, uh, you know, get the election, as he says, to the Supreme Court, where he's going to be, we're going to be appointing a, a, a justice who, uh, uh, you know, who may rule in his favor. So, uh, it, it, it may be that the political calculus was not let's get soft, uh, you know, let, let, let's get some of the undecided. No, it may just be let's run against the election. Karen, uh, to wrap this up a bit, the nonpartisan Presidential Debate Commission is considering making changes to future debates if we have <laughs> future debates now with President Trump's uh, testing positive for the coronavirus. The next scheduled debate is October 15th, uh, sort of town hall style format with questions coming from regular voters, ordinary folks reflecting their challenges right now. It seems the consequences would be more severe if average voters are treated with the kind of disrespect that we saw on Tuesday night, Karen. Yeah, I did some reporting yesterday uh, with people who know what's going on with the debate commission. And the fact is, uh, in practical terms, there's really not a lot they can do in terms of changing the format. They really can't give the moderator a mute button. It's just impractical. Um, I think what they are assuming, however, is that the next one uh, be, because the questions will be coming from ordinary Americans who will be sharing the concerns about what is going on in their lives, uh, that you know presumably will do a lot to sort of tamp down the, shall we say, exuberance of the president. But in that third debate, um, it would you know, which comes a couple of weeks after that. You know, we may see this exact same Trump out there again on stage, and there is. Practically speaking, very little the debate commission can do to change that. Well, thank you all uh, for these thoughtful, uh, this thoughtful analysis. I want to move now to Capitol Hill, uh, where Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett met with Republican senators this week. Um, the Senate is on a fast-paced course to confirm Judge Barrett by Election Day. Nancy Cordes, you were in a lot of those meetings. You talked about them earlier with Judge Barrett in the context of coronavirus and not many people wearing masks. I'm just curious, broadly speaking, what struck you about the meetings themselves with this um, with this nominee? 
Well, she got a rapturous reception from many of the Republicans who met with her. They said that they were thrilled by her nomination. They uh, extolled her uh, work ethic, her experience, her resume. And um, Chuck Grassley even went so far as to say, uh, you know, he's going to vote for her, which is something he doesn't usually admit ahead of time, ahead of the confirmation hearings. But he said um, yeah, this is this is not his first rodeo with Amy Coney Barrett, that he had been the judiciary chairman back when she was confirmed in 2017 for her federal appeals court post. So there's a great deal of familiarity on the Republican side with her. Uh, I asked a number of Republicans if they felt that if confirmed, whether Amy Coney Barrett should have to recuse herself from any election cases that come before the Supreme Court this year involving the man who just nominated her. And uh, they either declined to answer, the the, um, leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, wouldn't say, but many of them, including Ted Cruz, including Lindsey Graham, said that the notion that she would recuse herself is preposterous and and that she uh, was beyond politics and that she would be able to be impartial uh, exactly the same way that Elena Kagan or Sonia Sotomayor have been uh, able to be impartial jurors when deciding cases involving Obamacare because they were appointed by or nominated by President Obama. So uh, certainly she's under no pressure from Republicans to recuse herself if she is confirmed. Um, and, and Lindsey Graham, who's now the chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, has just said again that uh, it's all systems go, and he is still planning to hold her confirmation hearings the week uh, the week after next, so starting on October 12th. Karen Tumulty, what do you make of this? Uh, the Supreme Court is slated to hear these challenges to the Affordable Care Act right after the election. Huge implications, as Nancy is referring to. What's your take? Well, I think that it's been interesting, too, to see that this, that the Democrats have been framing this choice, this Supreme Court choice around health care, not around social issues, not around you're not hearing as much talk about abortion rights as you might normally hear. Uh, I mean, they they believe that health care is, in fact, the top concern of voters, especially as they go to, uh, you know, vote during a pandemic. And that this, in fact, could be the the issue that has the most resonance. Well, let's stick on Capitol Hill for a minute. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin uh, met this week to try to resurrect talks on the stimulus relief package. Here is uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi addressing those stalled talks at her press conference yesterday. We're hopeful that we can reach agreement because the needs of the American people are so great. But there has to be a recognition that it takes money to do that. And it takes the right language to make sure it is done right. This was the first in-person discussion between uh, these two, between Pelosi and Mnuchin, since talks collapsed in early August. Nancy Cordes, Democrats pulled back their plans to vote on a $2.2 trillion bill, which is opposed by House and Senate Republicans and has no chance of becoming law. You've been watching this really closely. What can you tell us? Right. They held off for a while uh, to wait and see if Mnuchin and Pelosi would be able to strike a deal. But uh, the House is leaving at the end of this week. They're going back to campaign for the month of October because they're all up for re-election. So they went ahead and held that vote, and um, and they're now leaving town. So they've passed it in the House. Pelosi and Mnuchin are still talking. It isn't dead, but they're about a half a trillion dollars apart. And uh, there's no guarantee, even if they do strike a deal uh, that's 
let's say, somewhere in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range, that Senate Republicans will accept it because they want to spend much less than that. They've not necessarily signed on for this. So there's no guarantee that Senate Leader Mitch McConnell would even put it on the floor for a vote. So there's a lot of obstacles here. Yes, it is a good sign that they are back at the negotiating table and they're talking. Obviously, everyone would like to be able to do to be, show their voters ahead of Election Day that they are trying or succeeding at doing something for them because it's now been a couple of months since people who are unemployed have gotten those $600 a week checks from the federal government. Uh, and we're also talking about another round of stimulus payments, those $1,200 checks, um, talking about more money for testing and for health care and for schools and first responders. So uh, this is really, you know, according to a lot of state and local officials, money that is badly needed. And it's not clear at this point whether they're going to be able to get over the finish line. Well, and Pelosi has been under a lot of pressure from moderates in her caucus, Karen Tumulty, including some in really tough re-election fights to take new action. Uh, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, has been pushing for a vote on a new bill so that members can go home to their districts and say, well, at least we tried, right? And and let me just insert this here. News just in that employers added 661,000 jobs in September. We now have a 7.9% unemployment rate. That's the last jobs report before the election. Karen Tumulty, a lot at play here. But the, you know, what we're seeing, I mean, you keep hearing people talking about sort of a, a K-shaped recovery right. that, um, you know, that, that people in the upper income spectrum are, 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 in fact, you know, recovering economically. But there still is a huge, huge segment of the population that is in really desperate, desperate situation. And the fact that that the president and Congress have not been able since the spring to come up with some sort of relief for these people who are suffering so much is, I think, one of the biggest indictments of, of really how badly our government and our political system are broken. Jack Beatty, real quick response from you on this. Well, and in 24 hours this week, uh, American Airlines, 19,000 layoffs, United, 13,000, Disney, 28,000, Allstate Insurance, $3,800, meanwhile, and 800,000 people uh, filed for unemployment last week, uh, and yet uh, they, they, can't, they can't make a deal. And Nancy Cordes, the House is set to go on recess today until November. That's right. And it's not to say that they couldn't come back and vote if there was a deal. Um, they're, they're always able to do that. But obviously, they put themselves at greater risk every time they go backwards and forwards. And they've got a, a, a very big election coming up in just a month's time. And so uh, they want to be able to spend that time connecting with voters however they can in this coronavirus environment. Mm. Well, uh, with just a couple minutes left here, I want to circle back to where we began uh, with the coronavirus. And it's important to note that the death toll from coronavirus worldwide has now eclipsed one million. And in the United States, infection rates are up in more than half the states. Of course, President Trump now, another huge story, uh, his diagnosis of coronavirus. Um, Panel, look ahead for us. Uh, Open your reporter's notebooks. Uh, What an incredibly turbulent time we are in. What are you anticipating as uh, you look forward to uh, next week? Karen Tumulty, you first. Well, I am just, for me, it's a big mystery as to, you know, how this campaign even proceeds. And again, we, we will know a lot more when we get a sense of how sick the president is, if he is sick. 
um, I think it could change the course of the rest of the campaign. Nancy Cordes, what are you watching this week? Well, I'm going to be watching uh, what happens to all of these members of Congress who shook hands with the president this week, attended his debate, rode on Air Force One, came in contact with some of his top advisors. We're talking about uh, Republicans in the House and Senate. Uh, Do they have to isolate? Do they test positive? And what does this all mean for uh, what is really the biggest story on Capitol Hill right now, which is the the ongoing confirmation battle uh, for Amy Coney Barrett? And Jack Beatty, you have the last word in about a minute left here. Well, you know, this could be a moment uh, for, a, you know, a cautionary tale for the whole nation and maybe even beginning with Mr. Trump. Uh, you know, King Lear on the, on the, out on the heath looking at the homeless, he says, too little care of this. Take physic, pomp. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. The president is now getting close to feeling what wretches people who suffered from this have felt and, 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 and maybe it'll change his, his not just his, uh, and we hope it won't change his health, but maybe it'll change his tune about prevention and about what people can do to fight off this, uh, this uh, pandemic. Just when we thought things could not get more turbulent in this country. Many thanks to a terrific panel for your insights. Uh, a lot of breaking news today. Thank you for your time. Karen Tumulty, Washington Post correspondent who covers national politics. Karen, as always, thank you. Thank you for having me. Nancy Cordes, chief congressional cor- correspondent at CBS News. Nancy, always great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Great to talk to you. Thank you. And Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst. Jack, thank you, as always. Thank you, Jane. You can continue the conversation. Listeners get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. We're there at On Point Radio. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Ceres, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish. Are the people who are working with ESG data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers? So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team, but they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to 
Where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles? So sustainability is no longer a cute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.